You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Glad to have you back. This is episode 22, covering April 11th through April 15th, 2016. we got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, it's been a pretty interesting week uh, in the news and also at the Institute itself. So we'd like to start with reminding you that our summer school is coming up in June. If you haven't already signed up for it, you should. It's June 12th through 17th, 2016. It's the 14th, 14th annual summer school, and it's being held at Seabrook Island, South Carolina, as usual. And the topic is the Southern tradition and the renewal of America. Um, So a lot of great um, material for you. Uh, It will be a very good time. It's not just your typical academic conference, and I think people need to know that. I mean, there's other things going on here. Uh, for example, you will have a, uh, a visit to, uh, the, uh, uh, to a plantation home, the home of uh, Thomas Lynch Jr., who signed the Declaration of Independence, and uh, you'll have um, a nice talk there. So it's a day-long visit to that particular plantation. Um, and so there's also uh, other events going on during the week. It's not just lectures. Uh, You'll have fellowship and time to converse with people, both faculty and uh, attendees. So please consider going. We do have scholarships available for students, and uh, that's a nice way to send a student. Um, We need students because at one point, all of the the people who are leading this, uh, this institute won't be here with us any longer, and so we need to keep this going. So please consider sending a, a student uh, to the to the institute uh, to the week long event there at the uh, at Seabrook Island. Uh, it is a good time. So, uh, and I think the topic is amazing: the Southern tradition, the renewal of America. It's a great topic. What can the Southern tradition provide for America in the future? And we're going to talk about that a little bit this week because we've had some some material. Uh, that I think uh, emphasizes that we need this uh, because there is so much misinformation out there about the South. And I think, actually, what I want to start with this week um, is the the invectives, the, the vile invectives that are often levied against us. Um, and it, it's, it's very funny because, of course, our side is often seen as these very rude, uh, mean-spirited, nasty people. And if you ever get the chance to read comments, or if you could just read the emails that we get sometimes from people who don't like us, uh, it is amazing how how hate-filled the people uh, who, who don't like our position are. I mean, these are the most vile, hate-filled people I've ever seen in my life. And I'll give you two examples. First, uh, there was a comment that was not approved. On our website, this is the other thing that's very funny. These people come to the website and think that they can just write a comment, and we're just going to show up on the website. Uh, it has to go through a, a a process by which it's approved, um, a referee process. And um, this comment said this, and it's not going to be approved. Mister Davis, uh, unfortunately, has a noble last name, but this guy's an idiot. Uh, this is what he wrote: "Quote." Sherman should have burnt the whole place to the ground, all the way to the Atlantic, leaving nothing and no one in his path. Of course, period after Atlantic, and then leaving nothing and no one in his path, sentence fragment. Uh, 
His failure to show mercy on our future has left us with secessionist cucks that cling to a time when they felt superior over other men, that consider it a state's rights issue to own a humanist property, and cling to a line of thinking that the war had actually nothing to do with slavery. Sherman should have done us all a favor and dealt the South the same fate that future generations of sons of Confederate veterans want to impose on the brown-skinned people of countries far away, turned the place into ashes, and killed them all. Now, that's very funny because I've never come across anyone uh, in any organization, uh, modern organization with the South, that wants to do anything like that. In fact, uh, these are the nicest group of haters I've ever met in my life. Um, it's, it's quite funny that uh, Mr. Davis has this opinion because I'm sure he's never attended any of these events and doesn't know anything about them. But, hey, this is hate. He wants Southerners exterminated. Exterminated. He's saying it. Now, how do you think this would go over if anyone from our side wrote, a, wrote something like this on a website? Uh, he wants people, he wants Southerners absolutely exterminated. And then it's, people are openly saying this. Uh, there was a Washington Post piece uh, written by uh, famous uh, Cortland Malloy, who's... Uh, in the uh, game of, uh, of essentially race baiting. But um, there are some comments there under that uh, where these people, again, openly say that essentially Southerners should die. First comment. Problem is not too many Confederate memorials. Problem is not enough Confederate cemeteries. Grant and Sherman failed us here. So again, we didn't kill enough Southerners. Uh, even Malloy uh, suggests that we should take down Jefferson, the name of Jefferson Davis Highway and call it Nat Turner Highway. Right. The guy that uh, slaughtered 60 people, uh, innocent people, you know, children. We should, we should name a highway after this guy. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me how, I mean, these, these people really do believe in extermination of people. Um, and uh, another another comment. I have no problem with taking down monuments to the traitorous leaders of the slaveholders' rebellion. The traitorous leaders. This is it. This is the, this is the line of thinking that people now have, and we're going to get into that in the last piece of the week. But because they don't understand the principles behind which self determination took place, I mean, you can. We can talk about the causes of secession all day. But the fact is, even in 1776, the British said the South, or actually the entire American colonies, which all had slavery at that point, were seceding, but particularly in the South, seceding from the empire to perpetuate slavery. And it's amazing how that particular event with 13 slaveholding colonies is, it's okay. I mean, Sam Adams was a slaveholder. Benjamin Franklin, at one time, owned slaves. Now, of course, Franklin changed his tune and, and started uh, supporting petitions, abolitionist petitions. But that doesn't uh, eliminate the fact that uh, every colony in 1776 was a slaveholding colony. Um, it doesn't eliminate the fact that uh, the British said that one of the main reasons for the war was... Uh, Slavery. And yet that part of the story is not 
discussed because it doesn't fit with the northern narrative of cultural superiority because they don't even know their own history. So we're living in this time when Confederate... This is, this is the low-hanging fruit, and I'm going to get into this today in, in something that I wrote in response to an, another anti-memorial uh, piece. But this is the low-hanging fruit, and it's only going to get worse. Again, look at the, look at the vitriol in these comments against this stuff. The people that are supporting... I mean, here, uh, you read some of the things that people are writing about this. Uh, my great uncle's name was on the Appomattox statue, and he did, died fighting for a peace, for a perceived injustice, federal overreach, and states' rights. He fought for the ideal that a man should pursue his own destiny and fortune, black or white, without federal mandates. There's no vile vitriol there, like you see from these people saying, kill them all. Uh, and generally, that's what you find. People are saying, well, look, this, in this particular piece in the Washington Post is talking about a, a statue that's in uh, Alexandria, uh, in the middle of Washington Street. It's a it's a forlorn Confederate soldier. No no weapon. His hat is off. His head is down. He looks sad. And people are saying, you know, why tear that down? Uh, it, it, it's it's this this is uh, this is nothing more than a cultural pogrom against the South. And so remember when you when you look at when you look at these things, and you see that uh, the other side is so mean spirited and hateful. I mean, they really are. Um, it's it's amazing to me how how the how the side that wants to keep these things up, how the side that's supporting these monuments. There's no hate. There's no invectives. There's nothing. It's just we we want to remember. Our ancestors. We want to remember the cause of self-determination because, really, at the end of the day, now to most people who look at these things who aren't offended by them because they exist, this is what they think of. It's a cause of self-determination. It's against them, and I think the point of traitorous. This is what we have to start thinking about. So we're going to talk about that in a couple pieces, but this is where we have to fight back. When people call these Southerners traitors, they do not understand American history at all. So that's where we have to fight back. So let's start with our pieces. First, a nice uplifting piece. The first piece of the week was by Tom Daniel. He always writes such nice, pleasant stuff. And uh, the title of the piece is American Music is Southern Music. And he's exactly right. American Music is Southern Music. And he, he, he talks about the uh, the television reality show or reality television show singing competition, American Idol, which wrapped up uh, a couple of weeks ago, or uh, last week, actually. Um, and he, he mentions that there are 15 winners of American Idol. Uh, and he says, three are from North Carolina, two from Alabama, one from Texas, one from Arkansas, one from Missouri, one from Georgia, one from South Carolina, and one from Mississippi. Eleven of the 15 winners were Southerners. And then he says, wait, it gets worse. And he says, when you, add out, when you add all the contestants who came in second place, then you have 19 out of 30 finalists representing the South. And of course, in this last season, five of the top six finalists were from the South. Uh, and he says, in fact, there were only two seasons out of all 15 that did not have at least one Southerner in the finale. 
So he points out that the South really dominated the show. Uh, and that um, this is something that Northerners can't stand. And then he has a very interesting statement. The Southerners keep slaughtering the competition in the music shows because all the music belongs to us. What is rock and roll is a blend of country music, rhythm and blues, and black gospel. The first rock and roll star was a kid named Elvis from Tupelo, Mississippi. The Southern singers are able to recreate that historical blend of their own authentic Southern sounds, while the non-Southern singers are only able to offer up a distant copy. The Yankees sing from the surface, while the Southerners sing from the heart. And it's easy to hear the difference. He he concludes, Yankees spared no expense to beat us over the head with lies about their abundance of culture and, and our lack thereof. They leap to every opportunity to eradicate Southern culture and promote their own, but when it comes to music, Yankees don't stand a chance. It must kill them to know that practically every genre of American music comes from the South. Blues, jazz, folk, country, bluegrass, Cajun, R&B, soul, rock and roll, funk, Zydeco, sacred harp singing, ragtime, rockabilly, Southern rock, etc., etc. American music is Southern music. And then as Tom often does, he says, however... If it will make the Yankees feel better, I do have some old statues standing in my flower bed that they can come knock over. <laughs> so, um, he's right. You know, this is this is something we do try to promote on the website, and the next piece is also that particular way that there really was a vibrant Southern culture, even to this day. This idea that Southern culture was backwards and did not exist, even Southerners uh, perpetuated this myth at times that there was nothing there, that the North was the only cultural bastion in the United States. It's just completely hogwash. It's preposterous. Uh, but this is the this is this what we're often taught. In fact, if you take an American literature course, you're going to get a heavy dose of Northern literature. You might read a little Faulkner, maybe a little Flannery O'Connor, but that's it. You're not going to read much else. You, you're going to read Poe, but Poe is not considered by Northerners to be a Southerner. Um, he is simply a great American author, so they've co-opted Poe. You might read Mark Twain, and the reason you're going to read Mark Twain is because Mark Twain is the Southerner they like because he hated the South. Um, So he's humorous, he's funny, and he detests where he's from. Uh, So, uh, you know, Mark Twain is acceptable because he he turned his back on his own people. Um, I think that's where uh, you see... Uh, the line drawn, you know, if any Southerner is proud of being from the South, well, that's just not acceptable. You just, you just can't be that way. The only Southerners that are accepted are those that critique the South and, and pick on the South and and um, talk about the South the way that Northerners like to talk about the South. Uh, so uh, this is problematic in American culture, but as we've seen with the comments, it's typical. Uh, this this is typical. This is what uh, happens when uh, you have an entire culture, as Susan Mary Grant pointed out in her book, North Over South, where the northern idea of America, which uh, in so many ways is wrong, has, has been unchecked for the last 150 years because the South couldn't do it. And they tried. I mean, there's, there's times when the South tried uh, to stop this march of centralization and uh, cultural imperialism, but... Uh, it, it's it's been a, a rear guard action, and you're just trying to hold on. To, it's like the 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 ocean lapping at the shore and eroding the sand. I mean, it's it's 
it's going to happen. It's just we've been trying to fight it by adding sand here and there, but that sand keeps getting pulled back away. But this is why the Abbeville Institute exists, because pumping that sand into that bar is important. Uh, you got to keep trying. And maybe one day, with the Internet, we'll have enough people that understand this and are willing to stand up for it. The second piece we ran uh, this week was entitled The Ireland of the Union. It's about Richard Henry Wilde. And most people don't know who Richard Henry Wilde was. Uh, But at one time, he was regarded as one of the finest American poets of his day. He was actually born in Ireland, but then lived in Georgia. Um, He was a Democratic Republican and later Jacksonian Democrat in the House of Representatives. Uh, Interestingly enough, there's a letter that we put in here that he wrote about William H. Crawford. Now, most people don't know anything about William H. Crawford, but Crawford was a candidate for president in 1824. He suffered a stroke, um, which really made his campaign uh, impossible. But he had a lot of support from people like Thomas Jefferson. He really was the Jeffersonian candidate in 1824, as you know, in contrast to Andrew Jackson, who spoke like a Jeffersonian. And a lot of these Jeffersonians would eventually end up, you know, begrudgingly supporting. But Jackson was not could not govern like a Jeffersonian. Um, Lord Byron actually actually called the poem that we put here, My Life is Like the Summer Rose, uh, the best poem to come from the United States. And Lord Byron is considered to be the figure in the Romantic period when it comes to poetry. Uh, but Wilde was really a Renaissance man. Um, he was a, a poet, a, a student of law. In fact, he taught law at Tulane University, uh, an astute social and pol- political critic. Um, and the thing that's interesting about Wilde is that he already considered uh, after 1824, 1825, he said, the South is the Ireland of the Union, and the game was rigged in Washington, D.C. He saw the two parties as one at that point, and what they wanted to do was enrich themselves at the expense of the Constitution. He wrote this in 1825. 1825! Here we are in 2016. We all see what's happening. People were pointing this out, particularly the Jeffersonians, in 1825. In fact, Thomas Jefferson had written uh, in 1824 after Crawford was defeated. This is a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, I confess that what we have seen in the course of this election has very much dampened the confidence I had hitherto reposed in the discretion of my fellow citizens. The ignorance of character, the personal partialities, and the inattention to the qualifications which ought to have guided their choice augur ill of the wisdom of our future cause. In 1824. Looking, too, to Congress, my hopes are not strengthened. A decided majority there seem to measure their powers only by what they may think or pretend to think for the general welfare of the states. All limitations, therefore, are prostrated in the general welfare in name, but consolidation in effect is now the principle of every department of the government. Jefferson wrote that in 1824. Uh, 200 years ago, practically. And, my gosh, this is what we're seeing every day. It's, it's depressing, really, when you start looking at this stuff and saying, these people knew it was happening 200 years ago, and here we are, 200 years later, and we've got an even bigger mess. So I'm going to read, uh, My Life is Like the Summer Rose, and then I'm going to read, a letter that uh, Wilde wrote to General David Blackshear in 1825. So the poem is not long, but here we go. And, and hopefully you like my uh, my poetry reading. Uh, I do this, done, did it last week. 
Going to do it again this week. So here we go. My life is like the summer rose. My life is like the summer rose that opens to the morning sky, but ere the shades of evening close is scattered on the ground to die. Yet on the rose humbled bed the sweetest dews of night are shed, and if she wept the waste to see, but none shall weep a tear for me. My life is like the autumn leaf that trembles in the moon's pale ray. Its hold is frail, its date is brief, restless, and soon to pass away. Yet ere that leaf shall fall and die, the parent tree will mourn its shade, the winds bewail the leafless tree, but none shall breathe a sigh for me. My life is like the prince which feet have left on Tampa's desert sand. Soon as the rising tide shall beat, all trace will vanish from the sand. Yet, as if grieving to efface all vestige of the human race, on that lone shore load mo- loud moans the sea, but none, alas, shall mourn for me. Now you can look at this poem in two ways. You can look at it as he's saying this is his life. You know, he's this it's a very depressing, very depressing uh, portrayal of his own life. People will mourn the loss of a rose or the loss of the beach, the loss of an autumn leaf. They're beautiful, but no one's going to mourn him. But you can also look at this poem like the South. A beautiful culture that's getting swept away. As I mentioned before, the sands are eroding. The sand, the feet print on the footprint on the sand, it's eroding. And it seems that no one will mourn for it. But there are those who are mourning for it. If you listen to this podcast, you're mourning for it. Those who write for the Abbeville Institute and who contribute to the Institute and who attend the conferences, they're mourning for it. The South is like the summer rose. Wilde also wrote a letter to General David Blackshear in 1825, and this is what he wrote. From what you have already heard, you may well imagine we have fallen on evil times. Again, this is 1825. There is no hope for the Republic during the next four years. The presidency of John Quincy Adams is what he's referring to. If it outlives that time and has strength enough remaining to shake off its doctors and its diseases, its constitution may be restored. But I have my doubts. So insensible to everything but the promotion of their own selfish views of interest or ambition are many of our public men of the present time. So open and blushing the traffic and influence which we have seen established that either they must be signally plenished or the people will lose, nay, must have already lost all belief in political honesty, and consider all difference of party as a mere pretext to cover the struggle of office between outs and ends. He wrote that in 1825. That's exactly what it is today. So I'm going to skip down a couple other things he said. This much is certain. Let the materials be compounded as they may. We have nothing to hope for from the general government. Our claims for militia service for the removal of the Indians are not treated with common decency. A refusal to do us justice is accompanied with a careless contempt of our rights and of the obligations of the Union to us. 
such as no man would use who had the least regard for the reputation of this government. The southern states are already the Ireland of the Union. I pray God that ere long we may not realize all the bitter consequences of the policy which has made us so. And he wrote that in 1825. It's amazing that so many people, Jefferson himself, knew what was happening. And, uh, of course, this is Jefferson's birthday week. They knew what was happening, and yet they couldn't stop it. And here we are in 2016. The, on, the onslaught is coming at us again. And it's hard to stop. So Wednesday, April 13th, was Thomas Jefferson's birthday. And uh, we republished a piece that Clyde Wilson had written in 1993. This is the 250th anniversary of Jefferson's birth. And he talks about how Jefferson um, has basically been lost. And he says in 1993, no one noticed. And he says, we did have, of course, President Clinton's inaugural journey from Monticello, though it's hard to imagine anything further from the true spirit of Jeffersonian democracy than the motley crew of socialists, spoilsmen, image manipulators, and foreign agents who make up the present leadership of the Democratic Party. Except perhaps the motley crew of stock jobbers, spoilsmen, image manipulators, and foreign agents who make up the leadership of the Republican Party. And he talks about how people um, manipulate Jefferson. He says, quote, conservatives misled by some of the more unscrupulous opponents of his own time have had problems with Jefferson's religion. Undoubtedly, he tended toward deism, as most of the intelligent men of his time, to some degree or other. But Jefferson was never an enemy of religion, despite the hysterical charges of New England preachers unhinged by the French Revolution and the personal loss of deference. Jefferson always conducted his family life within the Anglican Communion, in contrast to John Adams, who was invariably described as an upholder of orthodoxy, though he became a Unitarian, not out of youthful folly, but of a mature decision. Likewise, Jefferson's educational system has been praised and condemned as the progenitor of our modern public school establishment. But the debate system we have comes from Prussia by way of New England reformers Horace Mann and John Dewey. Its rationale is egalitarian and regimented progress. The goal of Jefferson's proposed educational system was excellence and the rescue of talent from obscurity for the good of the commonwealth. Which is true. The process, whereas New England New Englanders took over the Jeffersonian mantle, the process reached culmination in the 1850s when a new party stole the name of Jefferson's party, Republican, to cover a platform of business subsidy, abolitionist agitation, and Puritanism, all the things that Jefferson abhorred. It would never have occurred to him that his own personal philosophical position could be employed by very different men as an ideological juggernaut to coerce his fellow citizens by federal force. Jefferson, the public man, led and reflected a public consensus, not an ideological program. It was very clear to his own generation and the subsequent generation or two, and those parts of the country that followed him, 
what that consensus was. Jefferson and his friends came to power in opposition to the economic and moral imperialism of Hamilton and his friends, a program of taxes, manipulation of the economy for the inevitable benefit of a few, and the burden of the many, moral dragooning of the population, and involvement in foreign power politics. It was this threat that Jefferson and his friends put down and kept down for half a century, the happiest era of the Union. And so keep this in mind, this Jeffersonian tradition, because that's exactly what the last piece of the week is going to talk about. This was the platform of Jefferson, the leader, who postponed Hamiltonian calamities to the Republic and who was loved by the preponderance of the American people in his own time and long after. It is that Jefferson we need and who is our greatest asset against high-handed elites who oppress the people in the name of equality and popular rule. It is that Jefferson who said, quote, There is a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talent. And, quote, I am not among those who fear the people. They, and not the rich, are our dependents for continued freedom. And to preserve their independence, we must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. We must make our election between economy and liberty, or profusion and servitude. Clyde concludes, Once Jeffersonian Democrats were the most numerous of all American political types, During the second half of the 20th century, they have scarcely been heard from. Yet, in my opinion, there are, out there, in the hinterlands, millions of us waiting for for a reassertion of the principles of 1798 and for another revolution of 1800. But alas, we wait in vain for another Jefferson to lead. And we are still waiting in vain. Thursday, well... Let me back up. There was also another piece that was published on Wednesday by yours truly. And this has to do with a piece I talked about last week uh, that I wrote entitled At Arlington about James Ryder Randall. The man who wrote that piece, Christian McWhorter, who I misstated was James in the last podcast and in the piece, um, wrote a reply. And so I replied to his reply, and he refused he updated his post on it that he was going. He refused to engage in this because I don't think he could. Um, his excuse was, "Well, I see where this is going to go, so I'll let McClanahan have the last word." Yeah, because he couldn't respond uh, and he couldn't win. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go over this because this is pretty funny. Now the piece is uh, that that I'm, in, I'm talking about here was something he wrote for Time Magazine. Actually, he wrote it for the History News Network, which Time Magazine picked up. And uh, it was about Maryland, my Maryland, the, the state song of Maryland, which um, is now under attack, just like every other thing is under attack in the South, that has anything to do with the Confederacy. And it's important to note why it's under attack. They're using the charge of race or slavery, but in reality, it's something more. And I think this is what it's being, it's being shown openly. This is what it's about. When you hear people say, we need to get rid of this stuff because it's traitorous. This is the point. It has nothing to do with race and slavery. That's just a cover for what they really want to do. Uh, so McWhorter begins, he wonders in his piece when the neo-Confederate crowd 
would respond to his article. So it only took him one sentence to use that tired pejorative neo-Confederate to try to undermine my position and everyone else's position who opposes him. To people like McWhorter, anyone who disagrees with the modern program against all things traditionally Southern has to secretly pine for a return to the 1860s. And then he questions my research skills because I misstated his name, which I'll get into in a minute. But that was the one mistake in my piece. So then I go into all the mistakes in his. And I've, and I've attached uh, you know, his, his piece in mine. So go on out there and look at it. It's, it's quite interesting. So he takes issue at one point in his piece with my labeling him and mine a Lincoln apologist by arguing that he barely mentions Lincoln in his article. Now, this is disingenuous. In fact, I say that his real problem in his entire rebuttal is reading comprehension, consistency, and honesty. So this is being very disingenuous, because according to his byline, at time, McWhorter is an assistant editor for the papers of Abraham Lincoln and editor of the Journal of the Abraham Lincoln Association. He also uses Lincoln as his avatar on his blog. I think that constitutes a Lincoln apologist, even if you don't mention Lincoln in your article. It's clear this is your hero. Uh, from here, McWhorter jumps into a discussion of the term dissident. If you, if you listen to the last podcast, this is what he calls the song. It's dissident. This is why he opposes it. It's dissidents. <sighs> it's dissidents. You can't have dissidents. That's, uh, that's bad. And so he says, uh, he, he argues, this is what he says. Uh, the term dissidence is often used to describe opponents of authoritarianism. But then he contends that obviously wasn't my meaning in the article. Really? To whom was it obvious? If you're using the term dissident in relation to Maryland, my Maryland, and then you complain the song is pro-secession, that's dissidence. I don't know what definition he wants to use. It's what magical and hidden definition he's using. Maybe he needs a thesaurus or a dictionary. I mean, this would, this would come in handy, I think. Then he states that I suggest all this action, meaning dissidence, is good. And again, reading comprehension is a real problem here. I actually wrote that it seems dissidents are those usually on the right side of history. And I'm not understanding when usually became synonymous with all. I mean, I can say that Lenin was a dissident, but he's not a good guy. Of course, we can find uh, examples of when dissidents are no good, particularly when it comes to the left. They're usually the bad dissidents. But the real crux of his argument is that the state of Maryland should not use Maryland, My Maryland as the official state song because, this is from him, Maryland didn't secede during the Civil War and thus has never claimed to be independent from the United States. Thus, it makes no sense for an obviously loyal state with deep ties to and clear benefits from the American Union to have a state song that openly calls for the dissolution of that union. So I respond, true, Maryland did not secede in 1861. It did declare its independence from Great Britain separately in 1776, making it a free and independent state, legally independent from both Great Britain and the United States, which had not yet been created. Maryland acceded to the Union in 1781 and again in 1788, but the state of Maryland preceded the Union of the States. And how loyal was Maryland? It is fairly well established that Maryland may have seceded in 1861 had not Benjamin Butler thrown the entire pro-secession faction of the legislature in jail. That is not my definition of obviously loyal. 
And what about John Merriman and other citizens of the state, including the Baltimore police chief, who were arrested for their opposition to the Lincoln administration? I don't think these men had a clear benefit from the American Union. McWhorter then claims that I argue the Confederacy had nothing to do with slavery. I never said that. I don't think you can say that. But again, reading comprehension would come in handy. I said I would agree that Maryland by Maryland is pro-Confederate and pro-secession. Randall openly advocated Maryland secession, but pro-slavery, not a word of the song is dedicated to the institution, which is true. McWhorter's illogical fallacy is that because it's pro-Confederate, it's pro-slavery. This is, a, this is just illogical. Randall only penned the poem in response to the federal invasion of Maryland. How is that a defense of slavery? McWhorter also takes issue with my classification of Lincoln as a despot, stating, quote, There are more than enough places online and elsewhere to find eloquent and convincing refutations of those long discredited lost cause positions. And again, finally the lost cause gets thrown out, the pejorative. He'd already knocked out neo-Confederates, so it was only time before he started using lost cause. And Lincoln was classified as a despot during the war by many prominent Northerners, including abolitionist Lysander Spooner and former Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Robbins Curtis. And I've linked here to a, to a, a, a video where it shows some mainstream historians and legal scholars coming to this conclusion. This is not a creation of a lost cause. This was created during the war itself. Southerners didn't make this up. Northerners were openly saying it during the war. And it has not been long discredited. But of course, McWhorter is blinded by his adherence to the Lincoln myth, which is the real lost cause in American history, the nationalist myth. That is the lost cause. And we're living in it. It's then taken over. This is where people saying Southerners are traitors. They don't understand American history. And then he goes on to say, in the next paragraph, First of all, McClanahan can't possibly know my opinion on the removal of Confederate monuments because I've made no public statement on the matter. Indeed, I go out of my way in the original article to set the two issues apart, meaning the state song and the monuments. And then he cites this from his timepiece. Quote, unlike current dialogues about Confederate monuments, there's really no room for debate here. We might hesitate to move or destroy marble monuments for fear of permanently losing them. But if Maryland leaves Maryland by Maryland behind, the song will still exist. It will just go back to the historical record where it belongs. But what he doesn't do, he fails to mention when he says, well, I set the two issues apart. I've made no public statement on the removal of monuments. So this is what he said from the opening paragraph of the same piece. Yes, after decades of failed attempts, we finally have a compromise that might work, replacing the original 1861 lyrics by James Ryder Randall with a milk toast but inoffensive. That should be a sick. I mean, they're basically the same word. Again, the thesaurus. 1894 rewrite. It's a big step and part of the broader movement to remove, replace, or recontextualize public displays of pro-Confederate or lost cause memory across the nation. It's a big step and part of the broader movement to remove, replace, or recontextualize public displays. Up to this point, these efforts have paid more attention to monuments and building names, but Maryland by Maryland certainly deserves such scrutiny. That is only setting the two issues apart by about 500 words. 
Now, hesitate is the key word in the first. He's saying, well, I, I, we hesitate. A hesitation is a pause before an ultimate action, the action in this case being the purging of Confederate symbols. And I've seen no such hesitation on the part of anti-monument people. It can also mean a reluctance to do so, but from his opening paragraph, it's clear McWhorter is not reluctant to take part in a, quote, broader movement to remove, replace, or recontextualize public displays of pro-Confederate or lost cause memory. That is a public statement on the issue. And by the way, the original title of the piece when it ran at the History News Network was, What Took Maryland So Long? And I'm sure he didn't write this. The History, History News Network wrote it, but still, get rid of this traitorous song. Traitors. We have to get rid of the traitors. The traitors to what? What are they traitors to? This mythical union that has a certain geographic, dis, you know, Size, it can only be this, it has to be this size. The union has to be this big. And if it's not that big, then it's not the union. And he closes his piece with a poor attempt at humor coupled with a concurrent display of unwarranted hubris. And he says, apparently if his imaginary me, if my imaginary ver- version of me and my PC buddies change the song and remove these monuments, we won't just alter the country's historical landscape will erase the very ideas of self-determination and opposition to authoritarianism. He says, I had no idea I, or Marilyn my Marilyn for that matter, wielded such enormous power. It's like McClanahan's The Uncle Ben to my Peter Parker. This is a reference to a Spider-Man movie. So here we have Spider-Man, the great intellectual uh, film of the 20th century, entering this fray. Who knew that I had the strength to obliterate democracy itself? Here I just thought I was pointing out how absurd it is for a loyal state, again, sick, to have a song defying the existence of the federal government. But I'm actually summoning the horrifying Orwellian dystopia of political correctness and blind deference to authority. My God, what have I done? And so then I conclude. I never said that Warder himself wielded such enormous power. I thought so little of him that I incorrectly substituted James for his first name, and I never placed such high emphasis on his work. Hubris, even if it was an attempt, attempted joke. But I think McWhorter unknowingly admits why these symbols are under attack. It's not racism, of which the North was in no short supply, or slavery, for as the ardent neo-Confederate, lost cause partisan James McPherson has pointed out, the vast majority of Confederate soldiers did not fight for the institution. No. Confederate symbols are under attack because they represent resistance to authoritarianism and centralization, the true definition of dissidence. After all, the inscriptions on many of these monuments erected long after the conclusion of the war say as much. They also exemplify nonconformity with Lincoln's America and a belief in self-determination. By default, removing them finally, permanently, and shamefully confers the slander of traitor and treason to their cause, the same cause which created the American states in 1776. You will be assimilated. McWhorter openly takes issue with Maryland by Maryland because it is dissident. Even if he wants to, he cannot alter the definition of the word or his original line of attack. And if ultimately, McWhorter's piece is an example of the current political climate, and as such should be discussed and refuted. Confederate symbols and monuments are the low-hanging fruit for the modern PC crowd. But what happens when they're gone? Where does the mob go next? No one can rightly believe that political correctness will end there. If they do, they're not paying attention. Simply writing Trump and chalk on a college campus is now viewed as a violation of a safe space. 
This is the silencing of opposition. It's the same thing that was happening in 1798 when the Federalists passed a sedition law trying to silence free speech so they could win an election. It is the silencing of opposition. It is the silencing of, quote, dissidents. And you look at what the invectives being used are. It's traitorous. These are traitors. It's treason. These are dissidents. They have to be assimilated. One of the uh, comments of that Washington Post piece was, I know what we should do. We should name it Traitor Jefferson Davis Highway. You see, it's not about slavery, really. It's about opposition to them, and they can't stand it. Because if that still exists, if this idea of states' rights or self-determination or local self-government still exists, they lose because their entire platform, and I'm not just talking about Democrats. This is also Republicans, as Dr. Wilson pointed out in his piece. Their entire platform is centralization. They lose. Now, the funny thing is, you know, in his, in his little piece, he had like two people comment on it. So he has about maybe two readers. I probably boosted traffic to his website by this thing exponentially. Uh, I did conclude by saying I'd recommend that McWhorter keep writing for time. They have a fine track record of being on the right side of both history and political issues in, in general. Uh, and, of course, you know, one of the guys that commented on his post said, it's not political correctness, it's historical correctness. And uh, McWhorter himself said that, oh, yeah, I've read, I've looked at the Abbeville Institute, and all they are is just a bunch of shrill Tom Woods and Tom DiLorenzo acolytes. Right. Uh, so I said, you know, um, uh, as you know, all of us, neo-Confederate lost cause, Tom Woods and Tom DiLorenzo, shrill partisans, believe Lincoln's secret middle name was Adolf. And uh, so I put the covers of Time magazine that had Hitler as man of the year and Stalin as man of the year. Great magazine to write for. Uh, on Thursday, we ran a piece on Sherman's march through North Carolina. This is the unknown. This is by Karen Stokes, the unknown part of Sherman's march. Through North Carolina, and everyone knows about you know Georgia and then South Carolina, but he also his men also went through North Carolina, and someone somebody commented somewhere else that uh, you know again Sherman Sherman uh, he was he was a good guy he wasn't killing people just taking property. <laughs> Sometimes I can't I can't believe where where people come from. I, you know it's amazing to me. Oh, these people deserved it. And so uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but she, she put some very nice quotations from, from firsthand accounts as to what was happening in North Carolina. Uh, and, and Ms. Stokes is correct. Uh, there was a, a, a piece, uh, a paragraph she put in here by a woman named Cornelia Spencer. And uh, this is actually interesting because um, Cornelia Spencer wrote in 1866, if it be asked why these have been presented and why I seek to prolong these painful memories and to keep alive the remembrances that ought rather to slumber and be forgotten with the dead past, let me reply that it is deliberately an upset purpose that I sketch these outlines of a great tragedy for our northern friends to ponder. The South has suffered that they admit in general terms and add such is war. 
I desire to call their attention to the fact that such is not war, as their own standards declare, that the career of the Grand Army and the Great March, brilliant as it was, as was its design, masterly as it was its execution, and triumphant as was the issue, is yet in its details a story for which they have no reason to be proud, and which, if truly told, if there be one spark of generosity, one drop of the milk of human kindness in northern breasts, should turn their bitterness toward the south into tender pity, their exultation over her into a manly regret and remorse. They do not know, they shall never know, unless southerners themselves shall tell the mournful story, what the sword hath done in her fair fields and her pleasant places. But I would say, they don't care. Look at the comments. They don't care. The South should have been exterminated. These are traitors. Again, it's not slavery and race. It's that Southerners opposed them. They're traitors. There are Northerners who see the wrong in it. But it seems they're fewer and far between today. The last piece of the week is entitled, Is, is the Mississippi Flag, State Flag Anti-American? It is written by the President of the Institute, Donald Livingston. And this has to do with a story that came out uh, a couple of days ago where there's a United States District Judge named Carlton Reeves, and he's considering a lawsuit brought about by Mississippi Attorney Carlos Moore to rule that the state flag of Mississippi is unconstitutional because it is anti-American, meaning it symbolizes secession and slavery. So again, it's anti-American. In fact, this is what Judge Reeves said. He said, Judge, he said, quote, the Confederacy is anathema to anybody who lives within the 21st century. Essentially, because it's, it fostered secession, that is not American. It's anti-American because it was opposed to the United States. And again, geographic disposition. But we need to understand what it means to be an American. And so Dr. Livingston gets into this. Americans, there are two different visions of America. There's a Jeffersonian and Lincolnian America. And so he explains what the Jeffersonian vision is. For Jeffersonians then and now, the Constitution is a compact between sovereign states intended to delegate a few enumerated powers to the central government for their mutual benefit as distinct political societies. International law, a state acting in its sovereign capacity, may lawfully secede from a federation that has joined. In the Lincolnian vision, however, the states are not sovereign political societies. Sovereignty is vested in the American people in the aggregate. Lincoln compared the states to counties in a unitary state. Just as a county cannot lawfully secede from an American state, so a state cannot secede from the Union. It was with this argument that Lincoln launched the bloodiest war of the 19th century, not to free slaves, but to prevent 11 American states from forming a federation of their own so as to free themselves from being ruled by a northern industrial ruling class seeking hegemony on the continent. And he says, if, if anyone is American, Jefferson is, and if anyone is an American, Lincoln is, yet their visions of America are incompatible. And then he asks which one is true. And Dr. Livingston goes on to say, the historical record of how the Constitution was formed overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supports the Jeffersonian vision. We have forgotten that the Jeffersonian vision more or less dominated North and South from Jefferson's election in 1800 up until Lincoln's invasion of the South in 1861. And he points out that Northerners were behind this vision as well. 
He said, this Southern-led Jeffersonian America was a remarkable place. Americans lived nearly free of federal taxes and federal debt. Today, Americans are burdened with taxes, onerous regulations, and grown under a $20 trillion debt. This is possible because, having rejected state nullification and secession, the central government can define the limits of its own power. In Lincoln's day, that power was seized by Yankee nationalist oligarchy. Today, it is in the hands of a globalist oligarchy, which controls both political parties. And he says, when the South seceded, it was acting squarely within the Jeffersonian understanding of the American founding. Acting through state conventions, Americans had seceded twice before, from Britain and from the Union under the Articles of Confederation. Article 7 of the U.S. Constitution says that the secession of nine states from the Articles of Confederation would be sufficient to form the United States, leaving the other four states under the Articles. He says this, the peaceful division of the Union by the action of sovereign states was thoroughly American. It wasn't anti-American. It was the best solution to all the many problems confronting a clear dysfunctional federation of states in 1861, including the problem of slavery. Indeed, abolitionists had argued that secession of the North and the South would be sure to set slavery on the road to extinction. The Union had expanded to four times its original territorial size in only 60 years. It was simply too large in territory for Republican self-government. Now, the suppressed in Lincolnian America, the Jeffersonian tradition has always been a telling source of criticism of the totalitarian tendencies intimated in Lincolnian Americanism, tendencies that can no longer be disguised. And this is the problem. These monuments symbolize Jeffersonian resistance to them. So they can't be there. They can't be there because... If they're there, people will still think, hey, we can resist this central authority. We won't be assimilated. This is the real problem. Then he says, even secession, though a long thought to be heretical, has again become topical. He points out that there have been polls taken that show that people are favoring secession or maybe Jeffersonian principles of nullification. And then he says, Judge Rees thinks Confederate symbols are anathema to anybody who lives within the 21st century. Of course, neither he nor anyone else knows the meaning of the 21st century. That century has hardly begun. But I observed that it opened with the dramatic secession of 15 states from the Soviet Union, which, as in our Pledge of Allegiance, was said to be indivisible. That was followed by a number of secessions in Europe, which continue to this day. And secession talk has even entered public discourse in America, which is a sign of the staying power of the timeless principles of Jeffersonian Americanism. Confederate symbols are the living memorial of that founding tradition. That is why they need to be removed to the other side. Mr. Moore, Judge Rees, and our current ruling class have self-imposed blinders when they survey the American political tradition. They can see hardly anything but slavery and racism. It is one thing to have a just concern for wrongs done in the name of race. It is a pathological problem to be obsessed with those wrongs. Confederate symbols, Dr. Livingston concludes, express the timeless truth of the founding founding Jeffersonian Americanism. They were embraced by Northerners and Southerners prior to the Lincolnian Revolution. Many Americans today, from all sections of the Union, still view those principles as the noblest part of the American political tradition. That is why the Abbeville Institute exists. I say this every single week, but this is why it exists. We're here to try to perpetuate that tradition. Not only Southern culture, which is important, 
whether it's literature, music, art, we do those things. But it's also important to recognize that what can we get, what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition? And this piece hits that home. It is that spirit of self-determination of small is beautiful. That is the Southern tradition that people all over the United States embrace. It's not just in the South. In fact, I would say sometimes Northerners are doing it better than we are today. If you look at green farming and uh, self-sustaining agriculture and some of these things, which are really popular in places like California, uh, really popular in California, um, I I think that um, some people are doing it better. They just don't know what it is. They don't realize that is the Jeffersonian tradition. So please support the Institute. We exist on your generous contributions. We can't exist on our own. If you're so inclined, go onto our webpage. Go to memberships. Become a member. Less than five bucks a month gets you a membership. And you can help us keep doing this podcast. And as our, as our influence grows and as we get more users and uh, more people visiting our website, we have to keep updating our online presence, and that does take money. It takes money to put on conferences. It takes money to do things that are of an educational nature. We need your support. So please contribute. And please, if you have anything you want to write, submit it. Go to the Abbeville Institute website, go to article submissions and submit something there. Uh, Help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We can't do it alone. Until next time, good day. Mm -hmm.